Good evening, Little Masters, and welcome to episode 144 of the Prancing Pony podcast, which itself might be deemed a tongue of the black land since it is foul and uncouth. <laughs> <laughs> hey, only sometimes, man. Come on, yeah, give us well, some credit. <laughs> but folks, go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who seemeth to shrink, though he loseth neither his beauty nor his shape. <laughs> Alan Sisto. Oh, man, this is another case of you can't lose what you never had, Sean. (laughs) Well, my problem is that even if I do seemeth to shrink, I still don't feel like I'm in shape. But, you know, more on that later. Because right now, or not, preferably, because right now it's time for another philology fair. Yay! I love that music so much. Absolutely. Well, Folks, the word we're covering tonight was actually introduced in our last episode, but, well, I wasn't really ready to do this segment last episode. But that is a pity, because that was when we were introduced to that wonderfully condescending term that the big folk use to refer to hobbits, halfling. Now, if you're like me and you spent many years rolling D20s with your friends over D&D books before you ever read (laughs) a single work by Tolkien, you may actually have heard of halflings before the Council of Elrond. After all, halflings as a vaguely hobbit-like race of little people are pretty common in role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And I assume that most of the publishers of such games use the word halfling instead of the word hobbit to avoid evoking Tolkien's work, you know, quite so directly. Well, there may not be quite such uh, noble purposes, but yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think as a a game designer, probably, you know, you call them halflings, you can kind of put your own stamp on on the race and not be limited to all those characteristics of hobbits as Tolkien describes them. I think sure, sure. if I were writing a game, I think it probably makes the writers of those games pretty happy to be free of those constraints. I'm pretty sure it makes their lawyers happier, actually, but that's just my position. Well, that's probably quite true. Um, <laughs> interestingly, though, much like he brought the tall elves and the dwarves with a V back to the world, that's Tolkien right. pretty much invented the word halfling, too. Well, hmm. more or less. In the nomenclature of the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien explains that halfling is not actually an English word, but might be, i.e. it is suitably formed with an appropriate suffix. Now, however, the authors of Ring of Words point out a little error in Tolkien's explanation there. They say, in fact, halfling did exist in English, though with a very slightly different meaning, quite a long time Hmm. before Tolkien used it in this specific way. The Oxford English Dictionary says that it is a northern and Scots word and gives examples as far back as the late 17th century. It means one not fully grown, a stripling, which is, of course, how a hobbit superficially appears to a human being. True. Now, Gilliver and his co-authors then give the example of how Burgil, the boy from Minas Tirith, says to Pippin, I am ten years already and shall soon be five feet. I am taller than you. And point out that This is a little younger than the age ascribed to the adjectival use of halfling by the OED, which is not fully grown, about the age of 15. And they go on to point out that ling is a familiar suffix forming nouns for persons whose nature or status is indicated by the first part of the word, such as firstling or nursling or weakling. It is also found in Tolkien in easterling, as well as, and I'd forgotten about this one, in beardling, a derisive term for a dwarf used by the orcs of Moria. Now, you can find that story oh, yeah. in Appendix A3. Beardling is kind of a fun one. Yeah, yeah it is. I actually did some independent research into the Oxford English Dictionary myself, and I found that once upon a time in Proto-Germanic, 
this suffix ling was actually originally a compound suffix. It was actually two different suffixes put together. Um, according to the OED, it doubtless arose from the addition of the suffix, which became ing in Old English, to mm. noun stems formed with the suffix that became el or le in Old English. Uh, but in all the historical Germanic languages, it has the character of a simple suffix. Mm-hmm. I think if I'm translating the OED a little bit there, I think that means that this combination of two suffixes was so common in Germanic languages that it eventually just became one suffix. Yeah, yeah. In Old English, it had the sense of a person or a thing belonging to or concerned with what is denoted by the primary noun, kind of like what right. Alan just said. Right. It continued to be applied as a suffix well into the Middle English and Modern English period. Uh, examples like fatling, grayling, nestling, sapling. Right. But according to the Oxford English Dictionary, personal designations in Ling are now always used in a contemptuous or unfavorable sense, though this implication was not fully established before the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And it gives some examples of this contemptuous sense like courtling, earthling, groundling, popeling, meaning papist, wow, and so on. The OED says, however, the suffix is no longer productive in the uses above explained. Translation of all that basically is around the 17th century, the suffix ling added to another word to form a word for a person was generally used to create a derogatory word. But that suffix doesn't really get used anymore to create new words. Mm -hmm. So when Tolkien coined the word halfling, he did so knowing, and, and we can be sure of that, that the use of ling to form a common speech word for hobbits wouldn't only have that archaic sound because we don't use it anymore to make new words but would also have that slightly derogatory feel to it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we might expect from the men of Gondor, who can be a bit proud and haughty in their way. Kind of amazed the Noldor didn't come up with it, actually, you know, after calling people the stunted people and the sickly and things like that. But uh, <laughs> going back to Ring of Words, uh, Gilliver and company also mentioned that in some of the earliest drafts of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien used the term half-high instead of halfling. Huh. And the authors of Ring of Words comment, Most readers would probably agree that the coinage or adoption of halfling was a great improvement on the original common speech name for a hobbit. No doubt about that. Now, as for the word hobbit itself, I'm sure we talked about this before, but there's also a very lengthy entry for hobbit in Ring of Words, covering its in-universe etymology of Holbitlin and also the history of the word in English before Tolkien. But Mm -hmm. most interesting in that entry is the story of how the word hobbit was actually added to the OED in 1976 and how Tolkien had corresponded with the OED editor, R.W. Birchfield, regarding the entry before his death. In other words, what my high school teachers told me was wrong. The word hobbit is actually in the dictionary. (laughs) That's right. But if you're designing your own role-playing game, you might want to stick to calling them halflings. Or at least consult with your intellectual property attorney first. Now, let's go go ahead and get back to the book, (laughs) because we are all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Yes, we are. We bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time, but at heart, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's our passion. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for this show every week. Now, if you'd like to get your hands on a book we've mentioned, you'll want to check out the official library page of our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. There, we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. Show notes and book links specific to each episode, outtakes, Prancing Pony Ponderings, and a few other little extras. Mm-hmm. You'll also find a link to our new online storefront at teespring.com stores PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear as we get our designs up and running. So please check that out. 
Now, actually, before we get back to the book, we have a message from our guest from a couple of weeks back. Can't get enough Tolkien? Check out The Tolkien Professor. Dr. Corey Olson has spent more than a decade teaching and sharing the joy of Tolkien's works to an online audience of thousands. Each week on the Tolkien Professor podcast, you can explore the Lord of the Rings in a leisurely manner, traverse the virtual landscapes and architecture of the Lord of the Rings online video game with Dr. Olson's alter ego, Grifflet, and mm-hmm. collaborate on a never-to-be-filmed television version <laughs> of The Silmarillion. Yeah. Get in touch with other Tolkien fans at TolkienProfessor.com. And now let's get back to the Council of Elrond and see if they've managed to accomplish anything. All right. We're going to pick up right where we left off. I know. It's a committee meeting. Of course they haven't, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's way too early in the committee meeting for anything to have been accomplished. But uh, I mean, we still have like 40 pages know. to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Longest know minutes finish. ever. Oh, my goodness. So we're going to go ahead and start uh, literally where we left off the last time with Gandalf falling silent, which is apparently a rare thing. And I'll, uh, I'll begin there. Okay. Gandalf fell silent, gazing eastward from the porch to the far peaks of the Misty Mountains, at whose great roots the peril of the world had so long lain hidden. He sighed. There I was at fault, he said. I was lulled by the words of Saruman the Wise, but I should have sought for the truth sooner and our peril would now be less. We were all at fault, said Elrond, and but for your vigilance, the darkness maybe would already be upon us. But say on. From the first, my heart misgave me against all reason that I knew, said Gandalf, and I desired to know how this thing came to Gollum, and how long he had possessed it. So I set a watch for him, guessing that he would ere long come forth from his darkness to seek for his treasure. He came, but he escaped and was not found. And then, alas, I let the matter rest, watching and waiting only, as we have too often done. Time passed with many cares until my doubts were awakened again to sudden fear. Whence came the hobbit's ring? What if my fear was true should be done with it? Those things I must decide. But I spoke yet of my dread to none, knowing the peril of an untimely whisper if it went astray. In all the long wars of the Dark Tower, treason has ever been our greatest foe. That was seventeen years ago. Soon I became aware that spies of many sorts, even beasts and birds, were gathered round the Shire, and my fear grew. I called for the help of the Dunedain, and their watch was doubled, and I opened my heart to Aragorn, the heir of Isildur. And I, said Aragorn, counseled that we should hunt for Gollum too late though it may seem. And since it seemed fit that Isildur's heir should labor to repair Isildur's fault, I went with Gandalf on the long and hopeless search. And they did. And they did. We've talked about some of that already. Mm-hmm. A little bit. One thing we've talked about, but we haven't seen in the text yet, is Saruman's betrayal, right? I mean, we'll, you yeah, know, we'll find yeah. out in the text soon enough about how deeply, yeah, how direct, fully he has exa- betrayed them. Exactly. But here we get a hint, don't we? We do. We do get a hint. And Lulled by the words of Sodom and the wise. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we've never really been given a reason to trust him to begin with. No, that's true. Even as far back as the shadow of the past, Gandalf said that something held me back about telling him about Bilbo's ring. He had misgivings even then. Uh, now, mm-hmm. we also get Gandalf saying that at one point he still trusted Saruman's advice. So clearly we know something is up because a, a lot of this is, you know, sort of past tense. <laughs> past mm-hmm. tense. Yeah, in, in exactly. That's a very good point. So, yeah, we've had all these hints all along that Saruman is not to be trusted anymore and that Gandalf mm-hmm. knew something was up. 
Yeah. But yeah, we get uh, we get Elrond confirming there's a problem here, don't we? That's true. Yeah, we were all at fault. At fault for what? What happened? What do you mean? You know, mm-hmm. uh, he was part of the White Council, so we'll get some more on that later. But I want to spend a little bit of time on this line. In all the long wars with the Dark Tower, treason has ever been our greatest foe. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a pretty serious claim. Do we have evidences of treason in the text? Uh, I mean, we could point out some no. of the Second Age stuff with the Numenorians, right? I mean, but, but this is Gandalf speaking. He didn't right. show up in Middle-earth until Third Age 1000 thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the wars with Sauron between Third Age 1000 and now, which is 3018, so a little over 2,000 years. Yeah. We don't have, so we just have to speculate. What, what is this treason? Yeah. Right. What treasons are we talking about? And is this just maybe another textual ruin, another one of those things that implies a greater depth and more history than we're aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. And, you know, if I recall correctly, isn't that line one of Michael Drought's examples of a textual ruin? I, I can't I remember. Right. I can't I remember, remember if it was in the episode, uh, episode 66, when we talked to him or if it was mm-hmm. in his lecture that we talked about. Oh, you know, how to read on, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That great lecture that's on YouTube. Boy, you're not kidding. Phenomenal. In fact, it might have been in the lecture where he talks about, I you think, know, yeah. what is this treason? You know, kind of, right, kind of, right. Um, the, thinking about the way Drought delivers some of his lines is pretty great. But uh, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, what is this treason? We just don't know. And I think you're right. I think it is yeah. just a textual ruin that just hints at more depth. Right. You know, that we that we know is there under the surface. Mm-hmm. I like you, you kind of hinted at this, like, you know, we were at fault. There's yeah. a lot of sort of personal accountability in this passage. You know, mm, Gandalf mm-hmm. recognizes his fault. Elrond recognizes his fault. And Aragorn right. even says this thing about, well, it seemed fit that Isildur's heir should repair Isildur's fault. You know, yeah, that's what the good guys do in Tolkien's world, isn't it? They all take responsibility, well, you know, even if they, they like Aragorn, yeah. they don't really bear responsibility themselves personally, but they all just right. take responsibility. They they take ownership of their faults. And that's a. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a rare quality an, these days. An admirable trait. <laughs> it is, very much so. Indeed. I also thought there was something interesting here in this line of Gandalf's that I let the matter rest, watching and waiting only, as we have too often done. Mm. The, the passivity, the sitting and watching and waiting instead of doing. Instead of actually doing something. Right, right. And, and as we have too often done, the idea that this has been a mistake we've made in the past where mm-hmm. we're just waiting and waiting for, I don't know, some sort of 100% conclusory information Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, moving forward and and taking action. Well, and sometimes you don't want to rock the boat. I mean, if there's, you know, we, we get, you know, something like the watchful peace. Well, it was watchful, but there was peace, but it was peace. So, you know, you want to, for a very long time at that. Yeah. Right. So you want to keep the peace as long as possible, but, um, but, but yeah, you're, you're right. You know, they're, they're recognizing now, or Gandalf is recognizing now that, uh, we have failed to take action and we probably should have taken action sooner. Yeah. So, Tough call for the movers and shakers of the world. So um, Gandalf, of course, decides he needs to find Gollum, and, and he tries, but it, Gollum immediately escapes, and, and Gandalf just moves on to something else. So time passes, and then he gets Aragorn involved, and Aragorn's like, no, 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 we need to get, we need to get him. We need to capture him. Mm-hmm. And so we get a little bit of how big this hunt is, right? The scope, the whole length of Wilderland down to the Mountains of Shadow. This is a yeah. long, big search. Very big. And then you've got the next little passage here when he finally thinks of a test, huh? Yeah. All right. I'll go ahead and pick up there. And then in my despair, I thought again of a test that might make the finding of Gollum unneeded. The ring itself might tell if it were the one. The memory of words at the council came back to me, words of Saruman, half heeded at the time. I heard them now clearly in my heart. 
The nine, the seven, and the three, he said, had each their proper gem. Not so the one. It was round and unadorned, as it were one of the lesser rings, but its maker set marks upon it that the skilled, maybe, could still see and read. What those marks were, he had not said. Who now would know? The maker? And Saruman? But great though his law may be, it must have a source. What hand save Sauron's ever held this thing, ere it was lost? The hand of Isildur alone. With that thought I forsook the chase, and passed swiftly to Gondor. In former days the members of my order had been well received there, but Saruman most of all. Often he had been for long the guest of the lords of the city. Less welcome did the Lord Denethor show me then than of old, and grudgingly he permitted me to search among his hoarded scrolls and books. There you go. So Gandalf heads off to the White City to Minas Tirith. Time for a research montage. Right, exactly. A research montage indeed. Oh, I remember Saruman telling me about this. Mm -hmm. Hmm, well, where can I find that information, I think? Time to hit the books. Yeah, it is. Time to get your library card out, go to the mm -hmm. microfiche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring your Denethor's quarters to make welcome. copies. I know I'm dating myself. Oh with that gosh, one. I remember I'm those totally days. Bring your, that one. Yeah, yeah, to make copies, boy. Yeah, quarters—they really ripped you off. I think I only had to bring nickels, or maybe I'm just that much older. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah, that's obviously the answer. Buffalo nickels. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're not that old. Come on. No, I'm not that old. Gee. All right. But uh, Denethor not entirely welcoming, is he? No, grudgingly. Mm -hmm. And we don't read that, but his response is basically, look, you know, Saruman's been here a long time. You're not going to find anything. Uh, I'm not worried about the past. I'm worried about the future. Very much a Denethor sort of answer. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but his reference to Saruman is interesting. The idea that Saruman has been here. Saruman has been studying. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. You know, how did he get all this ring lore? Well, here's one of the answers. So yeah, there you go. The odds of you finding anything here, Gandalf, that Saruman doesn't already know is pretty slim, but of course, that doesn't mean you're not going to find something that Saruman hasn't already shared, because he's going to exactly. keep a lot of that knowledge for himself. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to get a fun, fun reading here. I am looking forward to reading this. I'm going to take the next little bit and including the the words of Isildur here, and then we're going to talk, uh, we're going to bring Shippy back in here. This is where uh, Gandalf sort of wizard splains Isildur's story to, uh, to Wizard splains. I love it. I love it. He sure does. He does. <laughs> he does. Yeah. You can see him say, well, actually, here's what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Let me tell you what you don't know, yeah. son. Yeah. There's definitely <laughs> epistemic regime at work here. Oh, well, you're not kidding. Boromir is the poor victim of the epistemic regime yeah. here. <laughs> so Gandalf <laughs> says, And Boromir, there lies in Minas Tirith still, unread, I guess, by Ennis's, Saruman, and myself since the kings failed, a scroll that Isildur made himself. But Isildur did not march away straight from the war in Mordor, as some have told the tale. Some in the north, maybe, Boromir broke in. All know in Gondor that he went first to Minas Anor and dwelt a while with his nephew Meneldil, instructing him before he committed to him the rule of the South Kingdom. In that time he planted there the last sapling of the white tree in memory of his brother. But in that time also he made this scroll, said Gandalf, and that is not remembered in Gondor, it would seem, for this scroll concerns the ring, and thus wrote Isildur therein. The great ring shall go now to be an heirloom of the North Kingdom, but records of it shall be left in Gondor where also dwell the heirs of Elendil, lest a time come when the memory of these great matters shall grow dim. You can see him looking at Boromir right there, boring holes through <laughs> yeah, with his eyes. Yeah. 
clearly memory's grown dim. Let me tell you what you forgot, son. Yeah. Exactly. And after these words, Isildur described the ring such as he found it. It was hot when I first took it, hot as a gleed, and my hand was scorched, so that I doubt if ever again I shall be free of the pain of it. Yet even as I write, it is cool, and it seemeth to shrink, though it loseth neither its beauty nor its shape. Already the writing upon it, which at first was as clear as red flame, fadeth, and is now only barely to be read. It is fashioned in an elven script of a region, for they have no letters in Mordor for such subtle work, but the language is unknown to me. I deem it to be a tongue of the black land, since it is foul and uncouth. Sorry. That's why I think we might be a tongue of the black land in secret. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we are indeed. That should be our new tagline, the Prancing Pony Podcast. Foul and uncouth. Foul and uncouth. There you go. Let's <laughs> see how that goes over. Right. What evil it saith, I do not know, but I trace here a copy of it, lest it fade beyond recall. The ring misseth maybe the heat of Sauron's hand, which was black and yet burned like fire, and so Gilgalad was destroyed. And maybe with a gold made hot again, the writing would be refreshed. But for my part, I will risk no hurt to this thing. Of all the works of Sauron, the only fair. It is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. When I read these words, my quest was ended, for the traced writing was indeed as a Sildur guest in the tongue of Mordor and the servants of the tower. And what was said therein was already known, for in the day that Sauron first put on the one, Calabrimbor, maker of the three, was aware of him, and from afar he heard him speak these words, and so his evil purposes were revealed. Oh, that was fun. Thanks for oh, letting me take that Oh, one. that's such a great passage, man. And Isn't it? That old scroll <laughs> uh -huh. from Sildur is just awesome. Yeah. And it's sinking feeling as you're reading it, but we'll get to that. Oh, I you're think not we, kidding. We probably need to, you're not kidding. We need to talk about just, just Isildur's writing style, don't we? His, uh, his register there. We do. In. We do. You know, coming back to Shippy and this whole idea about modes of speech, uh, he, he points out something that you probably already noticed. Isildur's scroll, quote, is even more archaic than Elrond's speech, using the old ETH verb endings, seemeth, mm -hmm. fadeth, and subjunctive forms like were the gold made hot again. Mm -hmm. A lot of that archaic language marking this is you know, exactly. a 3,000-year-old document. Yeah. Shippy also points out its most ominous feature, though, is timeless. Isildur says of the ring, It is precious to me, though I buy it with great pain. And any reader of The Hobbit, going back to Shippy's quote, will remember that Gollum, mm -hmm. too, called the ring my precious. That's right. So, yeah, this is like big red flag as you're reading this. Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it is. Whoa. We're, we're good here. I think we now know exactly what ring mm -hmm. Bilbo has. Mm -hmm. I think we might also want to explain one word, the, the word gleed mm -hmm. that we got at the very beginning. Of, yeah, I was of the thinking Silver's the same passage. thing. Not uncouth. I think Not uncouth. I think everybody uncouth. listening to us knows exactly what uncouth means. Oh, yes, they do. Yeah. But mm -hmm. uh, gleed is an archaic word meaning uh, live coal or glowing coal. Um, the word actually oh, wow. does still exist in modern English. It's just usually spelled G-L-E-E-D these days, and it's not very mm -hmm. common mm -hmm. anyway, but it is still in dictionaries. No, I don't think I've ever seen that word in, in use. Yeah, but this is, a, this is an archaic spelling, and it obviously was a word that was much more common at one point. Well, right, and meaning live coal. So mm -hmm. and we're talking really, really hot. Mm -hmm. No wonder his, his hand was scorched. Yep. So we get the destination of the Great Ring, the fact that it's going to go to the North Kingdom now. Mm -hmm. 
And then, of course, we get the description of the great ring, mm-hmm. like we just observed the heat and the pain. Yeah. But also the, the good stuff, right? It's beauty. It's amazing shape. I mean, this is just this is a, a, a piece of craftsmanship. It is. But the only fair of Sauron's works, that is very, that, that's the sinking feeling. Mm-hmm. That's where I get the sinking feeling. I mean, he's already kind of falling in love with the ring. That's the ring at work. Oh, yeah. You know, it, obviously, yeah, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just a gold ring, you know? Right. He, he loves this thing in a way that he shouldn't. Yeah, that is certainly true. And, and not a surprise. I mean, like you said, it's the ring mm-hmm. at work. It's what, it's what the ring does, mm-hmm. uh, especially to mortals. Yeah. So Gandalf's conclusion, well, time to go. Isildur was right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, we're yep. out of here. My work here is done. As he's leaving. Yeah, exactly. I can just hear him now. My work here <laughs> yeah. is done. Yep. Peace out, Denethor. <laughs> uh, Mic drop. Staff drop. Oh, wait, let me pick that up again. I don't want to lose right. that. So so he, he bails, and on his way back north, uh, he gets messages from Aragorn that Gollum has been found. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm going to have you pick up about a little bit about Aragorn's tale. Yes, indeed. And I'm going to pick up with Aragorn's response to Gandalf's comment that yeah, I don't even want to guess what Aragorn's been up to. <laughs> there is little need to tell of them, said Aragorn. If a man must needs walk in sight of the Black Gate or tread the deadly flowers of Morgul Vale, then perils he will have. I, too, despaired at last, and I began my homeward journey. And then, by fortune, I came suddenly on what I sought, the marks of soft feet beside a muddy pool. But now the trail was fresh and swift, and it led not to Mordor, but away. Along the skirts of the dead marshes I followed it, and then I had him. Lurking by a stagnant mere, peering in the water as the dark eve fell, I caught him, Gollum. He was covered with green slime. He will never love me, I fear, for he bit me, and I was not gentle. Nothing more did I ever get from his mouth than the marks of his teeth. I deemed it the worst part of all my journey, the road back, watching him day and night, making him walk before me with a halter on his neck, gagged until he was tamed by lack of drink and food, driving him ever towards Mirkwood. I brought him there at last and gave him to the elves, for we had agreed that this should be done, and I was glad to be rid of his company, for he stank. For my part, I hope <laughs> never to look upon him again. But Gandalf came and endured long speech with him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> for he stank. Aragorn just doesn't mince words. I like that. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. But doesn't this also make you feel a bit of pity for Gollum? A little bit, yeah. He, he, yeah. He's... Horrible. He's, you know, yes, he he's, is. he's evil. Yeah. We know this, but you still, you still feel pity. And we, we have to remember that Tolkien always wants us to feel, he, he always wants the, some, yeah. this thread of pity to be there for Gollum. Yeah, exactly. I mean, perhaps a thread is the, the way to put it because mm-hmm. it's not as though we should feel the whole time like Gollum's a victim. Right. Uh, you know, right. it's but, not like we should but feel of course, only he is a victim pity. in some ways. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, he is. Exactly. We should feel pity. The ring has, has done its amount of work on him. Of course, it does in relation to, to one's heart. That's why Bilbo yeah. didn't go around and start killing people. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Back, there must so. have been something in Gollum already. Yeah. That the exactly. wing just, the, the wing, the ring just the sort wing. of awakened. Marriage. <laughs> Marriage is what brings the us wing. together today. The Do wing you have awakened wing? something in Gollum. Uh. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we actually just watched The Princess Bride recently, so that that didn't did take you really? Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. For the first time, my uh, my kids got a chance to watch that. I need Pretty to watch hilarious. it with my kids soon. It's been on the list. 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a fun one. I like this thing at the beginning of Aragorn's comment. You know, hey, if a man's going to walk near the Black Gate, he's going to have perils. You know, it's kind of like, eh, no yeah. big deal. No perils, schmerils, yeah, whatever. Exactly. I'm, I'm through them. Right. But let's talk a little bit about the Morgul Vale because we get a description of it, a very brief one, in Book 4, Chapter 8, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol, where it's described as this. Wide flats lay on either bank, shadowy meads filled with pale white flowers. Luminous these were, too. Beautiful, and yet horrible of shape like the demented forms in an uneasy dream. And they gave forth a faint, sickening charnel smell. An odor of rottenness filled the air. Oh, man. That is not pleasant. Fun, fun times. Yeah. Good place to take Where's a stroll. Where's the Febreze, man? Good place. Where's the yeah, Febreze? right. Exactly. Good place to take a stroll. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but that isn't where he actually captures Gollum, right? No. No, but he no. did. He's on his way back home when he comes suddenly on what he sought. By fortune. Yeah. If fortune you call it. If, exactly, if fortune you might call it. So he finds Gollum. And like you said, he's never, we're a little bit left at, at, at a mystery as to what actually happens here. What do you mean Aragorn wasn't, wasn't gentle? Wasn't gentle. I mean. Had he just not exfoliated his hands? Was he kind of rough? Or, <laughs> or did he have to beat Gollum? We're all accused of not being gentle from time to time. But, you know, this is, who knows what was going on here. I want to revisit Paul Coker's Master Middle Earth, though, for a bit in regards right. to this passage. He says something that's really worth considering. Anyone who thinks that Aragorn, the future king, is or should be all sweetness and light should reflect on this passage. He's not gratuitously cruel to his prisoner, but he feels no need to be gentle with the malevolent. Whatever measures of binding, gagging, and starving are necessary to his job of getting the slippery wretch into strong hands without danger of escape, he takes. Hmm. Not that he has no pity for Gollum. He recognizes that he had suffered much. There is no doubt that he was tormented and the fear of Sauron lies black on his heart. But such a one is far too dangerous to be on the loose. His malice is great, and Aragorn is sure that he had just come from Mordor on some evil errand. Under such circumstances, there is a stern justice about Aragorn that weighs and rejects the risks of mercy. Well, and let's not forget that Gandalf wasn't especially gentle with Gollum either. Last season, no. in The Shadow of the Past, we read where Gandalf said, I endured him as long as I could but the truth was desperately important, and in the end mm. I had to be harsh. I put the fear of fire on him and wrung the true story out of him bit by bit, together with much sniveling and snarling. Yeah. Now, we talked about that all the way back in episode 101. I don't think we landed precisely on whether Gandalf had actually used psychological threats of torture, literally, right, or whether he was just using a little hyperbole for Frodo's sake. But, yeah. you know, either way... He didn't just charm the information out of Gollum and get what he wanted. No, you know? this wasn't like, you know, Come on, buddy, charm tell plus me. two. Yeah, right. No. Good cop, bad cop. You they've know. had to use no. a little force. Yeah. And I, and I really like Coker's observation that Aragorn is not mm -hmm. without pity. Um, right. He just does what needs to he, be he done. He weighs the risks of mm -hmm. mercy, but then he rejects mm -hmm. them, realizing yep. that the risk is too great. Yep. And he's absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, boy, and the risk is greater than he thinks, right? <laughs> yeah. Not just the smell. No. No, that's true. <laughs> I hope the elves in Mirkwood have showers when he yeah, gives them or to at the least elves. Febreze. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. So I want to do a quick sidebar on Aragorn's journey with Gollum. We're going to pull this from Unfinished Tales. According to Aragorn, Gollum was taken at nightfall on February 1st. Hoping to escape detection by any of Sauron's spies, he drove Gollum through the north end of the Emin Muil and crossed Anduin just above Sarn Gebir. Driftwood was often cast up there on the shoals by the east shore, and binding Gollum to a log, he swam across with him and continued his journey north by tracks as westerly as he could find, 
through the skirts of Fangorn, and so over Limlight, then over Nimrodel and Silverlode through the eaves of Lorien, and then on, avoiding Moria and Dimril Dale, over Gladden, until he came near the Karak. There he crossed Anduin again with the help of the Beornings and passed into the forest. The whole journey on foot was not much short of nine hundred miles, and this Aragorn accomplished with weariness in fifty days, reaching Thranduil on the 21st of March. That is amazing. Yeah. Fifty days to go nine hundred miles? That, That's yeah. like 19, 18, 19 miles a day. Yeah. 18 miles a day is what, it, yeah. My goodness, on foot with a guy who's trying to bite you and, you know, who's yeah. really not a pleasant traveling companion. You still and have crossing, to stop and crossing rivers. food. And, yeah, yeah. Crossing Multiple over limb, times. Crossing over limb light. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. I can't hear that word without thinking the of The limb light without limelight? I know. Yeah. I can't either. I knew that was coming, but of course. <laughs> I guess I just hoped it would come after we stopped. That's why I, I waited just long <laughs> enough to make you think, nah, he's not going to do it. He's not going to yeah. do it. You did, oh, actually. He did Good it. job with that. He did Thank it, you. yeah. Thank you very much. But seriously, 18 miles a day, every day, having to do it not on, on established roads, but through mm-hmm. the wilderness because he's trying to avoid detection. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also having to gather Only food a ranger. to feed yeah. two people because mm-hmm. he still has to feed Gollum, even if Gollum probably rejects most of what he gives him. Yeah, probably. Uh, so, yeah, that is an incredible accomplishment to do that mm-hmm. in just 50 days. So That's what a ranger can do, man. Yeah, it is. We find out, of course, after that, that Gandalf endured long and weary speech. <laughs> I, I do love that just because it, it just it sends the message that, man, talking to Gollum is just a chore. But It really is, yeah. Yeah, so Aragorn says, Gandalf came and endured long speech with him. And you can hear Gandalf just rolling his eyes, yes, long and weary. Yeah, (laughs) but he did get something out of it, not without profit. First of all, he corroborated Bilbo's story about how he got the ring, but he, Gandalf Mm -hmm. already knew that. But then that's where he learned that Gollum's ring actually came out of the Anduin near the Gladfields. Yeah, Yeah, which is another red flag, isn't Uh it? Uh Uh-huh. Yep, exactly. And then he, (laughs) he finds out that he's had it for a long time and that it had lengthened his years. Mm-hmm. When I hear that, all I can think of is remember letter 131, where we hear, you know, where we learn that lengthening his years is not adding to his lifespan. It's just no, stretching, stretching it out, stretching it out like right. butter, you know, like a wire ever more taut. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That just is such a, a vivid illustration. Mm-hmm. But that's where Gandalf fills in the gaps and he realizes, mm-hmm. oh, wait, this is a great ring. Right. Probably the great ring. If it's extending life, it's one of the great rings. Mm-hmm. And we yep. know where all the others are. And the right? fact that it was near three... the Gladden. Right, exactly. Right. And the fact that it's near the Gladden field says pretty definitively, wow. this is probably the ring. The yeah, one. The one. And so he goes on to provide a little more more evidence because he's still kind of talking to Galdor a little bit too. I mean, he's got Boromir doubting. But remember, mm-hmm. Galdor was kind of a, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Where are the proofs? Where's Saruman? Right. What does he have to say? Right. So Gandalf responds to him and says, And if that is not proof enough, Galdor, there is the other test that I spoke of. Upon this very ring which you have here seen held aloft, round and unadorned, the letters that are still to reported may still be read, if one has the strength of will to set the golden thing in the fire a while. That I have done, and this I have read. Ashnaz Durbatuluk, Ashnaz Gimbatul, Ashnaz Krakatuluk, Agbutsumishikrimpatul. Ooh. The change in the wizard's voice was astounding. Suddenly it became menacing, powerful, harsh as stone. A shadow seemed to pass over the high sun, and the porch for a moment grew dark. 
all trembled, and the elves stopped their ears. <laughs> Never before has any voice dared to utter words of that tongue in Imladris, Gandalf the Grey, said Elrond, as the shadow passed and the company breathed once more. And let us hope that none will ever speak it here again, answered Gandalf. Nonetheless, I do not ask your pardon, Master Elrond, for if that tongue is not soon to be heard in every corner of the West, then let all put doubt aside that this thing is indeed what the wise have declared, the treasure of the enemy, fraught with all his malice, and in it lies a great part of his strength of old. Well, there's a dramatic moment for you powerful, right there in the middle of the council. Powerful moment. Powerful moment. Unbelievable power. Excellent reading, by the way. Cool. I got chills. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Thank you very and much. And although we're not going to going on to read the translation, which everyone knows at this point. I wish we could. I, I wanted to read the whole chapter. But I know. Yeah. <laughs> but that is, that's one ring to rule them all. That's that line. There's two yes, lines in the black speech. Mm-hmm. And man, what a language it is, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a it's a very uh, very distinctive language, and I guess now's a good time for a mm-hmm. sidebar on it, isn't it? I think that's exactly what I was saying. Is I'm thinking I smell a sidebar. Here. <laughs> well, you know, you get get me started talking about one of Tolkien's languages. It doesn't smell like Gollum, and it doesn't smell like the no. Morgul Vale, but it's kind of like it smells that. like Black Speech. There you go. It smells like Black Speech. My my second favorite Nirvana song. Um, so I actually spent several minutes poring over this inscription the other night when I was reading this chapter, just kind of like parsing out the words. I'm not going to bore everybody with the sentence diagram that I did unless people want to see it. If anybody wants to see it, let me know. (laughs) You should know. You should put that up on social media. That'd be, that'd be uh, just a I probably actually will do, do that sort of the breakdown of each element in the black speech inscription, but it did get me interested in at least doing a little sidebar on the black speech. And a lot of this comes from the excellent website Artalambion, which is uh, run by uh, Tolkien linguist Helga Fevskanger. And I really hope that I've pronounced his name correctly. But his website Artalambion has some of the best information on the web about Tolkien's languages. And he even has a page about the black speech. So check out our website. We're going to have a link to his page where you can read a lot more about the black speech. But I'm going to start with something from Appendix F to Lord of the Rings. Okay. There, Tolkien tells us, it is said that the black speech was devised by Sauron in the dark years, that's during his reign in the Second Age, mm-hmm. and that he had desired to make it the language of all those that served him. Fevskonger describes it as sort of like a Sauron's version of Esperanto, not, not, not in terms of the way it sounds, but like, you know, trying oh, to yeah. create a language for, to, you know, to make people who speak different languages, to make everybody use that, you know, kind of bring them right, together. Right, right, right. Uh, but going back to Tolkien, it says, but he failed in that purpose. From the black speech, however, were derived many of the words that were in the Third Age widespread among the orcs, such as gosh, fire. But after the first overthrow of Sauron, this language in its ancient form was forgotten by all but the Nazgul. When Sauron arose again, it became once more the language of Barad-dûr and of the captains of Mordor. The inscription on the ring was in the ancient black speech, while the curse of the Mordor orc, now that's referring to Book 3, Chapter 3, where we get this lovely line of the black speech, Love that. <laughs> it's so fun to say, I have to say. Isn't it? It's so much fun. But that was actually in the more debased form used by the soldiers of the Dark Tower, of whom oh, okay. Rishnok was the captain. So uh, the, yeah, yeah. the curse in Book 3, Chapter 3 is uh, kind of like the, the common black speech, kind of like, you might even say like it's like vulgar, the everyday right. speaking tongue. Yeah, kind of the vulgar okay. tongue. In more ways than one, oh, but yeah. um, 
But, it, it, you know, and if you had to, like, make an analogy between, like, maybe like Elvish tongues, you could think of that as sort of like the cinderin of the black speech. Whereas okay. the, the ancient Quenya. that you get on. Yeah. The ancient that you get on the ring is the Quenya. I don't want to go too far with that analogy no, because no. it's it's not really it's not really the same Quenya and Cinderin both evolved separately, whereas it sounds right. like this debased black speech evolved from the black speech. But anyway, you can kind of think of it that way. One's sort of like the the lo- the language of lore and one's the language of speech. Okay. By the way, that curse is translated in the peoples of Middle Earth, and I can barely give you the translation on this show because it's a family <laughs> show. <laughs> but here goes. Here's what it basically means. Ugluk to the cesspool, Sha, the dung filth, the great Saruman fool, Sky. And Sha and Sky are evidently simply interjections of contempt. They are not translated, according to Fabscoggo. <laughs> oh, that's probably that. Yeah, that, that tells us something right there. They don't need to be translated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just going to leave those there. Yeah, I, I think we know what you can infer from that. So. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Now, Sauron was, of course, not the first Dark Lord to invent a common language to be used by his servants. I didn't know True. that. Believe it or not, within the pages of Osanwe Kenta, now that's the essay on telepathy, published in Vinyar Tengwar, number 39, mm-hmm. we learned that Melkor had done the same thing in the First Age. Now, think back to our discussion in episode 139. We talked about how nothing can penetrate the barrier of unwill that allows any entity to keep their mind closed to another. Well, Melkor found early on that when he tried to get into the minds of Maiar to win them over to his rebellion, those who were yet simple and uncorrupted in heart ceased to listen, ejected him, and closed the door. He needed Bester to help, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> P12, yeah. at least, to get it done. So Melkor looked for a way to get around this when it came to the children of Iluvatar, and then here's a quote, and this weapon he found in language. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's because you can lie with words, but you can't lie with telepathy. You know, mm, they, that's a good insight. Yeah, you're right. You can shut him out. When he's trying to get inside your mind, you can shut him out, but you can't stop him from talking and you can't stop him from lying. You can put your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 I'm not listening. You could. Humpadink, humpadink, humpadink. <laughs> I can't hear you. That makes the first few chapters of the Silmarillion a lot more interesting if you start if you imagine the Eldar just walking around Valinor, la 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 la. <laughs> well, it does say they sang a lot, so true. So, as great of a digression as that was into just how evil Melkor could be, here's the throwaway line that we're really interested in, though, from that Osanwe Kenta. We discovered that he had made a language for those who served him. Mm. Mm. There you go. Now, going back to how Sauron made a language for those who served him and failed to make the black speech the the lingua franca of all orcs. Mm-hmm. The problem was they just didn't care enough to bother to speak any language all that well. <laughs> That's orcs for you. Yeah. Later in Appendix F, we're told that orcs and trolls spoke as they would without love of words or things. Now, Fevskonker points out that that could only be a characteristic of evil for a mm. philologist like Professor Tolkien. Absolutely. And in fact, though Tolkien invented the black speech, he didn't seem to have the love for it that he did for his other linguistic creations. Uh, in letter number 343, which was written in November of 1972, he tells a story of how disappointed he was when a drinking goblet arrived from a fan, which proved to be of steel engraved with the terrible words seen on the ring. Hmm. I, of course, have never drunk from it, but use it for tobacco ash. <laughs> Tell us how you Quite really fitting. feel, Professor, once again. Quite fitting. I feel bad. I'm sure some of our listeners have like a ring tattoo somewhere on their body or something yeah. like that. Yeah, Tolkien wouldn't be. Tolkien was not a fan of those. No, yeah, no, he was no. not a fan of people sort of celebrating the the words on the ring. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I don't want to 
<laughs> I don't want anybody to go like having to go get laser surgery to remove tattoos. Now. No, it, it just uh, that's Tolkien's thoughts on it. I right, mean, exactly. You know, y'all can like the black speech all yeah. you want. Yeah. I like the fact that he used it for tobacco ash. Yes. And so I'm sure every time he pounded his pipe into it, he probably said Ash Nazg Derbataluk. Oh, get it? Ash Nazg. That's ash, awful. Ash. Isn't it awful? Thank you very much. That is that Thank is you. really really bad. Sean. Thank you very much. I'll be here for well another hour uh, until my until my co-host kicks me off the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure folks will be glad to hear that's not going to happen anytime soon. I hope not. But anyway, <laughs> on it. Uh, going back to Tolkien's thoughts about the black speech. Yeah. In a in a draft appendix on languages that's now published in the pages of the Peoples of Middle Earth, Tolkien. Well, it's not entirely clear whether he's talking about the black speech here or whether it's talking about uh, maybe this earlier form of Orcish that was devised by Morgoth or something devised by orcs themselves. But it's very clear that Tolkien did not like the phonology of any of these right. so-called evil languages. And I don't think he was supposed to, and neither were we. That's kind of the point. No, exactly. But Tolkien said uh, of, of early orc language, it was so full of harsh and hideous sounds and vile words that others' mouths found it difficult to compass. And few indeed were willing to make the attempt, except for Gandalf. Well, right yeah, here. there's that. I mean, and it is such a powerful moment oh, that he is. does, right? It I is. mean, it, you can tell the, the elves are not used to hearing this language. Mm -mm. Who's, who would speak that? They literally put their fingers that? in their ears. They stopped their ears. They, they covered their ears. Yeah. They didn't want to hear this. And, yeah. and the shadow over the sun, this is some real stuff here. It is a very powerful moment. And, I'll, and although this is not in my notes, I'm remembering now when we, back in episode 20, when we first talked to Dimitra Femi yeah. and Andy Higgins about, uh, about A Secret Vice, um, I think Dr. Femi did say, you know, it's any assessment of whether language is beautiful or not is going to be subjective. Right. So, you know, when we talk about the black speech, I think she kind of schooled us on that a I, little I bit. I remember that. Like, I felt oh, a little black... bit like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. She's totally right. Like we're talking, oh, the black speech, it's. It's it's so ugly. It sounds like the orcs themselves. She says, well, you know, not to certain people. It depends on right. It depends on what language you grew up speaking. Exactly. So we're not saying that, but it was certainly something that was it was something that was designed by Tolkien to sound unlovely, at least mm -hmm. to his own ears. Right. Just as much as Elvish was designed to sound lovely to his own ears. So right. absolutely. That's what's that's what's going on here. Yeah. So then we learn a little bit more about uh, what Gandalf was able to extract from Gollum. We learned that he'd been to Mordor and had been interrogated. And that leads him to say, look, the enemy knows it's been found. He knows it was in the Shire. He might even know we have it here. So hmm. now we have a little bit of, of aftermath, a little bit of absorbing the information. And that's actually where I'm going to have you pick up next. This is not a tense moment or anything. No, not a tense moment at all. Everybody's like, just like, yeah, you know, oh, he, he might know we have it here right now. Oh, here. Okay. And you uh, just spoke the black speech. Great. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can kind of imagine everybody looking around, and that's yeah. where I'll pick up. All sat silent for a while, until at length Boromir spoke. He is a small thing, you say, this golem. Small but great in mischief. What became of him? To what doom did you put him? He is in prison, but no worse, said Aragorn. He had suffered much. There is no doubt that he was tormented, and the fear of Sauron lies black on his heart. Still, I, for one, am glad that he is safely kept by the watchful elves of Mirkwood. His malice is great and gives him a strength hardly to be believed in one so lean and withered. He could work much mischief still if he were free. And I do not doubt that he was allowed to leave Mordor on some evil errand. Alas, alas, cried Legolas, and in his fair elvish face there was great distress. 
The tidings that I was sent to bring must now be told. They are not good, but only here have I learned how evil they may seem to this company. Smeagol, who is now called Gollum, has escaped. Escaped? cried Aragorn. That is ill news indeed. We shall all rue it bitterly, I fear. How came the folk of Thranduil to fail in their trust? Not through lack of watchfulness, said Legolas, but perhaps through overkindliness. Ugh, overkindliness. Well, they're elves. I mean, you know. Yeah, well, you know. Glowin has has a little something to say about that, though. (laughs) He does. We'll get to that in a minute. Overkindliness. Not a problem that you had before, I might point out. Yeah. So, yeah, oh, yeah, he's in prison. Uh, Guys, (laughs) I I have to say so. I'm the strange elf over here in the corner. I need to talk to you. Uh, yeah, uh, about that, guys. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, guys, there's a there's a there's a wretched thing moving <laughs> toward a, the eye thing. I think away the eye the thing is Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So we found out what basically what happened is they were really nice. They didn't want to keep him in the underground dungeons. They didn't have the heart to do that. They thought he he was rehabilitatable, and they didn't want him to fall back into his black thoughts. So they. They put them in trees. <laughs> they had pity. This is yeah. what we expect from elves. Yeah. You know, we, we expect them to, to try and see the best in everyone. Yeah. And yeah. Um, every once in a while, they're going to get burned with that mentality. Well, that's true. Glowing, though. <laughs> put them in trees. You said they put them in trees. I mean, yeah. I mean, he's just kind of like, you know, every prisoner deserves a little yard time, I guess. Right, but- right. <laughs> Did Glowin get any? <laughs> that is true. He did not. What's that? His little understatement. Right. Uh, there's uh, another those taciturn, taciturn statement right, that he right. makes. Uh, you were yeah. less tender to me. Yeah. You were less tender to me. Very what does that actually mean? Understatement of the year. Yeah. It means you were, you more were a cruel. lot crueler to me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But then Gandalf, you know, sticks his nose in and I like him. He's, he's coming in here and saying, look, this is supposed to be a joyous occasion. Let's not bicker and argue <laughs> about who killed who. exactly exactly oh but you know he's got a point you know these little little disputes are are gonna mean yeah gonna mean defeat we're gonna be here for um, a long time sorting this stuff out we need to just skip over this and glowing to his credit get to the present does exactly that and that's where i'm gonna pick up yep glowing rose and bowed and legolas continued no indication that Legolas acknowledged Glowin's rise and bowing. Like, you're right, but, you know, hey, we'll deal with it. No, no, Legolas just goes on with his story. In the days of fair weather, we led Gollum through the woods, and there was a high tree standing alone, far from the others which he liked to climb. Often we let him mount up to the highest branches until he felt the free wind, but we set a guard at the tree's foot. One day he refused to come down, and the guards had no mind to climb after him. He had learned the trick of clinging to boughs with his feet as well as with his hands. So they sat by the tree, far into the night. It was that very night of summer, yet moonless and starless, that orcs came on us at unawares. As they do. <laughs> Hello, we're going to be showing up at three o'clock. No, they don't do that. It's always on, at yeah, unawares. It's always unawares. We drove them off after some time. They were many and fierce, but they came from over the mountains and were unused to the woods. When the battle was over, we found that Gollum was gone and his guards were slain or taken. It then seemed plain to us that the attack had been made for his rescue, and that he knew of it beforehand. How that was contrived we cannot guess, but Gollum is cunning, and the spies of the enemy are many. <laughs> so, okay. so Legolas we is got, like... We got to back up a minute here. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. as much as I understand the elves wanting to be kind, wanting to believe that Gollum is rehabilitatable, the guards had no mind to climb after him? Seriously. Nah, can't, I mean, be, can't be bothered. <laughs> 
I, you've got one job, guys. <laughs> one You're job guards. on the stupid tree. <laughs> Can you guard, please? Oh, my I mean, goodness. It's like, again, another Monty Python reference, Swamp yeah, Castle. It it's like the guards in front of Swamp Castle as John Cleese is running right. towards him. And they're just like, what? They're just like staring at him. Right. And then like finally he just like finally is upon him and like stabs it. Yeah. Right. Hey. It and they're like, hey. That's <laughs> that's basically what happened here. That is exactly what happened here. But then there's the whole idea of the trees in the first place, man. Trees? There's a reason none of our prisons are in trees. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, again, I get the idea of letting him have a little yard time, but sure. come on. But if you're going to do that, you know, there should be, well, there's a reason that there's a fence around a prison yard. That's right? exactly right. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, man, this is bad news. It is. It is. Oh, and Gollum's gone. Thranduil. Thranduil, you ineffective king. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, look. No, I know. I don't want to be too hard on him because, you know, pity. It's, I, I think they were. I think they were kind of taken in a little bit by God. Oh, sure they were. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, this wasn't Sauron, like, you know, springing his old buddy oh, you no, know, out of jail. No. Uh, this is, he had an ulterior motive here. And I think we may have talked about this before, mm -hmm. but I think it's worth going back to Unfinished Tales uh, to remind ourselves what's going on here. In Unfinished Tales, we read, it is thus most likely that the first news of Gollum would be learned by the servants of Dol Guldur after Aragorn entered the forest. For though the power of Dol Guldur was supposed to come to an end at the old forest road, its spies were many in the wood. The news evidently did not reach the Nazgul commander of Dol Guldur for some time, and he probably did not inform Barad-dûr until he had tried to learn more of Gollum's whereabouts. It would then no doubt be late in April before Sauron heard that Gollum had been seen again, apparently captive in the hands of a man. This might mean little. Neither Sauron nor any of his servants yet knew of Aragorn or who he was. Mm -hmm. Now, the text goes on to say, but evidently later, since the lands of Thranduil would now be closely watched, possibly a month later, Sauron heard the disquieting news that the wise were aware of Gollum, and that Gandalf had passed into Thranduil's realm. Sauron must then have been filled with anger and alarm. He resolved to use the ringwraiths as soon as he could, for speed rather than secrecy was now important. Hoping to alarm his enemies and disturb their counsels with the fear of war, which she did not intend to make for some time, he attacked Thranduil and Gondor at about the same time. Now he had these two additional objects, to capture or kill Gollum, or at least to deprive his enemies of him, and to force the passage of the bridge of Osgiliath so that the Nazgul could cross while testing the strength of Gondor. To capture or kill. Exactly. He was not springing Gollum so that they could go on a, a joyride together and celebrate freedom. No. <laughs> this was... This was Steal to, a car to and capture drive to Mexico. Kill this is, uh, you know, that. yeah. This is not a this is not a Thelma and Louise moment for Sauron no, and Gollum. This is this is uh, capture or kill him so I can control the right. The, you know the information. Yeah, the flow of information. Has. These people can't learn anything more from him. Right. Right. And so, with that said, mm -hmm. we have to get to Saruman, don't we? Absolutely, and that's where I'm going to have you pick up. Okay. And now I will answer Galdor's other questions. What of Saruman? What are his counsels to us in this need? This tale I must tell in full, for only Elrond has heard it yet, and that in brief. But it will bear on all that we must resolve. It is the last chapter in the tale of the ring, so far as it has yet gone. At the end of June I was in the Shire, but a cloud of anxiety was on my mind, and I rode to the southern borders of the little land, for I had a foreboding of some danger, still hidden from me but drawing near. There messages reached me telling me of war and defeat in Gondor and when I heard of the black shadow, a chill smote my heart. 
but I found nothing save a few fugitives from the south. Yet it seemed to me that on them sat a fear of which they would not speak. I turned then east and north, and journeyed along the greenway, and not far from Bree I came upon a traveller sitting on a bank beside the road, with his grazing horse beside him. It was Radagast the Brown, who at one time dwelt at Roscobel, near the borders of Mirkwood. He is one of my order, but I had not seen him for many a year. Gandalf, he cried, I was seeking you, but I am a stranger in these parts. All I knew was that you might be found in a wild region with the uncouth name of Shire. Your information was correct. I, I know. Don't let them hear you say that. Who's Radagast to call anything uncouth is what I'm <laughs> I know, right? I know. Your information was correct, I said. But do not put it that way if you meet any of the inhabitants. You are near the borders of this shire now. And what do you want with me? It must be pressing. You are never a traveler unless driven by great need. I have an urgent errand, he said. My news is evil. Then he looked about him as if the hedges might have ears. Nazgul, he whispered. The nine are abroad again. They have crossed the river secretly and are moving westward. They have taken the guise of riders in black. Hmm. Man, what a moment that is. Just more confirmation. Man. You know, this is... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're, they're looking for the Shire, we find out later. Yeah. Hmm. No wonder Gandalf was anxious. You know, I, I, there's something you know, at the beginning of the reading you were talking about. A cloud of anxiety was on my mind, he says. Mm -hmm. he's, he knows something's up. Yeah, he knows He just doesn't up. know what yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. And now we're starting to see all the little gaps filled in. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are. Since, yes, since we the are. beginning of the story. So, yeah, Radagast. Mm -hmm. Now, at the risk of dropping too much word nerdery into a single episode. Can that be, can that be done? Can, I don't know. Can I think there be the, too much word nerdery? I think the sidebar on the black speech might have us bulging at the seams already. Um, I don't know. We're okay. Word nerdery. All right. <laughs> well, then let me go ahead and talk a little bit about Radagast because I okay. do want to bring in a little note from Hammond and Skull here. In Unfinished Tales, Christopher Tolkien reports that in a very late note on the names of the Astari, Radagast is said to be a name deriving from the men of the Vales of Anduin, not now clearly interpretable. However, Douglas Anderson in The Annotated Hobbit points to a, a Gothic leader named Radagasius who invaded huh. Italy in the early years of the 5th century. Interesting. And meanwhile, Hammond and Skull also say other sources, including the 11th century German historian Adam of Bremen, tell of a possible Slavic deity called Redagast, with an hmm. E and an I, Interesting. Uh, whom Jacob Grimm appears to refer to in Teutonic mythology. Okay. Who knew I'd get a chance to reference that book again, right? Boy, you're not kidding. Um, <laughs> but in Jacob Grimm's book, he appears as Radigast with an A-I or Radegast with an A-E, huh. uh, which Grimm derives from Rad, meaning glad, or Rados, meaning joy. Huh. Interesting. Now, of course, readers familiar with the Astari section in Unfinished Tales might remember that his name in Valinor was Iwendil. And that was, according to Hammond and Skull, perhaps from Quenya Iwe, a small bird, and of course, the famous suffix that we've seen a lot lately, Endil, or devoted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And then there's Rosgabel, Radagast's old home in Mirkwood. That derives its name from Sindarin Rosk, that's R-H-O-S-C, which means brown, and Gobel, walled house or village, town. And there are mm -hmm. no giant racing rabbits in <laughs> Rosgabel. I just want to make that clear. Don't go looking for the Rosgabel rabbits. You're not going to find them. No, they're going to be ordinary-sized rabbits, that's all. Well, yeah, that's true. But they're not going to be the Rosgabel rabbits. No, there won't be. No. That you've seen. 
No, let's be clear about that. Certain that, places. that maybe you've seen and that hopefully you haven't. But anyway. Radagast's message, of course, is, is, you know, simple and to the point. I've been looking for you. There's an urgent errand. The nine are abroad. They're asking for the Shire. Uh, in the passage after you. <laughs> the, the uncouth land. Of uncouth Shire. land. Sorry. The uncouth land. I do love that. By the uncouth name of Shire. Mm-hmm. And notice that Gandalf doesn't correct him there about Shire, but he corrects him later when he says, I've been told that wherever they go, the writers ask of a land called Shire. Yeah. The Shire. Yeah. He just kind of subtly says, yes, I was in the Shire, but he doesn't say, he doesn't accentuate it. He says, you're near the borders of the Shire now, but he doesn't say until later, the Shire. Yeah. Stop calling it Shire. He does correct him, but not right away. Mm -hmm. That's very patient of Gandalf. It gives him a chance, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct himself, uh, which he doesn't. But anyway, so (laughs) we get Gandalf's (laughs) concern that, look, even the wise, so we're talking the, the White Council, right? They would fear going against the Nine. This is, these are serious yeah. foes. These are absolutely serious foes yeah. when they are gathered together under their fell chieftain. And he has that description about how he was a great king and sorcerer and wields this deadly fear. Yeah. So, but then and by the way, where'd the, you hear all this? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, well, Saruman told me. And he said that if you need help, you got to go ask him quickly or it's going to be too late. And that's where I'm going to pick up. Okay. And that message brought me hope for Saruman the White is the greatest of my order. Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue, and he has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends. If they were his friends, they wouldn't poop on his head all day. Oh, wait, that's the movie version. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's the truly uncouth version of Radagast. Boy, that is the uncouth version of Radagast. But Saruman has long studied the arts of the enemy himself, and thus we have often been able to forestall him. It was by the devices of Saruman that we drove him from Dol Guldur. It might be that he had found some weapons that would drive back the Nine. I will go to Saruman, I said. Then you must go now, said Radagast, for I have wasted time in looking for you. The days are running short. I was told to find you before midsummer, and that is now here. Even if you set out from this spot, you will hardly reach him before the Nine discover the land that they seek. I myself shall turn back at once. And with that he mounted and would have ridden straight off. Stay a moment, I said. We shall need your help, and the help of all things that will give it. Send out messages to all the beasts and birds that are your friends. Tell them to bring news of anything that bears on this matter to Saruman and Gandalf. Let messages be sent to Orthanc. I will do that, he said, and rode off as if the nine were after him. Hmm. And that's where we're going to stop for for this episode, actually. That's where we're going to pick up next time. But let's talk a little bit about that. Gandalf is hopeful. Saruman is the greatest of the Astari. He has studied the enemy. He's the one who's been studying yeah. Sauron, Sauron himself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I do like the bit on the specialties of the wizards. You know, you get that Radagast yeah, yeah. has been studying the, you know, herbs and beasts and birds. Saruman mm-hmm. has studied Sauron. You know, I think we know Gandalf has spent a lot of time studying and getting to know the various peoples of Middle Earth. That's mm-hmm. kind of cool. Yeah, that's true. That really is. You're right. And that Radagast can... A master of shapes and changes of hue, one makes you mm-hmm. think that he could be a shapeshifter of some sort, you know? Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah, certainly. And we see that he does his part, doesn't he? You know, Gandalf yeah, says, send messages out there, send messages among the beasts and birds. And Radagast says, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. And it's a good thing he does too, right? I mean, <laughs> that will end up, yeah. as we will find out eventually, proving quite helpful. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Indeed, it will. Well, folks, that is going to wrap up our discussion on the, what is this now, the third part of the Council of Elrond? But we're not done yet. Yeah, yeah. So we've got Parliament's bag coming your way in just a minute. And even when that's done, the talk continues all night long at the Branson Pony. 
That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our Common Room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, Mm -hmm. as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. Yeah, it is important to do both. And now we have another common room on Reddit. You can find great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle at prancingponypod. So follow us wherever you might be. And if you like us, share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, or anywhere you happen to find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know how much you love us, give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more visible the podcast is. That helps Mm -hmm. others find us and this awesome community of Tolkien fans that we've been building together. Boy, you're not kidding. Amazing folks out there. You guys are Mm -hmm. so great. We love having you. Now, if you would like access to exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, uh, PPP swag, and and a little bit more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Now, I think it's time to see what old Barnum has in the mailbag for us. Sean? All right. Well, first up tonight, Effie from Israel wrote to us to ask, The fate of the elves in the Third Age is very interesting. They reach an understanding, if I'm not mistaken, that they will have to leave soon, regardless of the outcome of the war. If the ring is recovered by Sauron, all that was built by the elves, at least the ring bearers and their special dominions, will be under the control of Sauron. If the ring is destroyed, all that was built with them will be lost or fade. Hmm. Would you say that elves were destined originally to move to Amon and leave Middle-earth, even though their nature is to be connected to all of Arda? Or is this some kind of spabimi, where Eru Hmm. wanted elves out of the picture so men could have their chance to shine? It is very interesting to me that Sauron is instrumental in this. Or is this, she goes on to say, the final punishment for the Noldoran exiles? We saw in the First Age that anything the Noldor wrought in Middle-earth would eventually turn to dust. Although Arendil attained atonement on behalf of elves and men, perhaps this was just a reprieve, and men got to live in Middle-earth, but there was still a decree that no Noldoran kingdom, such as Rivendell or Lothlorien, would survive. Hmm. Wow, that is a, that's an excellent set of questions, a real complex question. Uh, let's go ahead and break it down, Sean. Okay, well, going back to the beginning, uh, first of all, yes, the elves were destined <laughs> Which is originally. what Vassini told us to do. <laughs> that's right. Go back, go back to Vassini the beginning. To go back to the beginning. So I have. Yes. Yes, the elves were destined originally to leave Middle-earth to men. Uh, in one of my favorite quotes from Tolkien's 1954 letter to Peter Hastings, that's letter number 153, he says, The entering into men of the elven strain, that's, of course, you know, through Luthien and Idril and Arwen, right. is indeed represented as part of a divine plan for the ennoblement of the human race, from the beginning, destined to replace the elves. Right. From the beginning. So this well, was, was part so of Iluvatar's mm-hmm. plan. All, yeah, it is. And this was part of Iluvatar's plan all along. Right. The elves were meant to come first. They were meant to spend ages living on Arda and creating beautiful things. And remember, they were around for a long time before the sun ever rose. Oh, yeah. Very long time. And then once men came along, they were supposed to pass their wisdom on and pass on their bloodline to ennoble the men who would come afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then when the, the dominion of men is ready to begin, that's when the elves would leave. Right. Now, I don't think or I don't know for sure that they were destined from the beginning to sail to Amon. Iluvatar's original plan seems to have been simply for them to fade. You know, we mm. get a lot of that in some of the later uh, history of Middle-earth books about right. how their Feyar will actually consume their Hroar until they become basically oh, yeah, yeah. beings of spirit. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of gather that that was probably the original plan, was that was the original way they would leave Arda to men was just by fading. Mm-hmm. But 
it does kind of seem that when the Valar offered Amon to the Eldar as a refuge way back in the Elder Days, they made it available to them as a place to retire to. It's kind of like Elf Florida. Elf Florida. <laughs> Minus the hurricanes. Yeah. Minus the hurricanes. So is the fact that Sauron is involved in this, that Sauron sort of becomes an instrument of this uh, this passing the torch, mm-hmm. is that a bit of spabimi? Mm-hmm. Is Iluvatar taking the plans of the Dark Lord and then making them his own to further his own plan? I don't know. Alan, any thoughts? Well, you know how much I love spabimi. I mean, we see mm-hmm. examples of this all the time. The The plan of Iluvatar is related to a specific outcome. In this case, it's for the elves to fade and ennoble men who would replace them. Mm-hmm. But that plan can be achieved via what honestly seems like an infinite number of possible circumstances. In this case, it's the ring and Sauron. Now, we need to be clear, Sauron and the One Ring are only part of the solution because of the creation of the rings of power in the first place. I have to wonder what would have become of Rivendell and Lorien had the Noldor in Eregion hearkened to the messengers from Linden bidding them beware. Mm-hmm. So the ring and Sauron can be a part of this because they they already were created, uh, not as part of Iluvatar's right, plan, right. basically. But now that they're here, they can be taken up and incorporated into That's the That's what Spibimi does. Is, it, it totally Spibimi incorporates it, those things. That's what yeah. does. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting... That's an interesting what if. Yeah, what would have is. happened to them if uh, if they had listened to those messengers and the, the rings of power had never been made, yeah. had not come to be. Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, that's a really interesting set of questions, set of what ifs. Now, yeah. as for whether this is further punishment for the Noldor, like Galadriel, I mean, I don't want to think so. Mm. Um, but the Doom of Mandos ends with the words, and those that endure in Middle-earth and come not to Mandos shall grow weary of the world as with a great burden mm, mm-hmm. and shall wane and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. Now, that is clearly what happens. Right, but I right, guess right. the question is, is, is that the pronouncement of a sentence? Like, because you have done this, this is what's going to happen to you? Right, yeah. Or, or is it, just, is what it is? just is it just what is and what has always been a fact of their nature? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I... I do tend to think that we are seeing the playing out of a theme that was established in the music, maybe incorporating some of these new elements. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you, you could you could start to speculate, what if the rebellion of the Noldor was not in the music from the beginning, but what if it was something that was added in by Melkor and that was, mm. then was sort of taken up and incorporated into something greater, kind of oh, like yeah. the Ents were? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't know. It, it's hard to say, but uh, it, sure is. It, it does seem like these are these are things that are sort of meant to play out this way, but I think, like you said, it's because of things that happened along the way. Right, exactly. Deep questions. I like this. Now, earlier we agreed that the elves are fated to fade and end up handing the world over to men, right? That's that's part of the plan of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. But this, this statement about this burden, it goes beyond that. This isn't just fading. This is to grow weary. But that fading that ends up making them shadows of regret. I, I think Mandos' statement here is illustrating both the fate of the Eldar in general but the fact that the Noldoran Rebellion, let's whack the Feanor pinata while we're here, it, it <laughs> took place making that fading much, much less pleasant for them. That, that, that the existence of that rebellion makes the oh, fading a lot less pleasant, a lot less natural. It makes it harder and more difficult. So, I don't know. You were meant to fade, but because of this rebellion, part of your ongoing punishment yeah. will be that this is going to be miserable right. for you. You were going to fade and it was, you're That's always going to lose out on that. You know, the men are going to supplant you one way or the other, but you could have been a part of that process and it would have been easier. And now instead it's going to be harder mm-hmm. because 
you're going to have this this burden, this weariness, this just shadows of regret. What a terrifying phrase that really is yeah. for for a being who's going melancholy to melancholy is a word that Tolkien yeah, uses. Well, melancholy yeah. is a great word for it. So I, I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm thinking. But as for the rebellion itself being in the music, I have to admit I'm not. Well, I will tell you I don't want to go there, but I have to admit I can't rule it out. <laughs> you know, I, I tend yeah. to think that the in yeah. the music was no flaw. Right? That's that's what we get at the beginning of Ainulindale. But at the same time, well, until, until Melkor started, started in, until Melkor at that started. point, yeah, right. maybe, yeah. And that's what I would think. I don't think it was part, it's of, not part the, of the score. It's part of the it part of the uh, the celestial sheet music that everyone's represented to celestial the celestial sheet music. But, no, but it was one of the improvisations yeah. that you know maybe got, uh, and then maybe this is that's Spibimi, that's taking this this mm-hmm. discord that Melkor has wrought and turning it into part of yeah. the plan or, or working exactly it working plan, it to so still accomplish the plan, plan using it to help get to the finish mm-hmm. line even if it's yeah. you know having to take a little detour agreed yeah and that's a really interesting thought about uh the elves having a, a much harder time with this fading because yeah. of what they've done i i, I have to think about that one and maybe on it's more a of a natural bit, consequence but, uh, of it and it less of right. a punishment like as, as not a punishment but just like the consequence this is just how it's it is. just a natural yeah. result of you acting mm-hmm. this way it's now yeah. going to make it harder for you to ever accept your fading yeah yeah Oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. I have to think about that. Cool. Well, I uh, hope you enjoyed that answer, yep. Effie. And I'm going to move on to one more question from John B. All right. John says, me and my wife recently watched The Shawshank Redemption at the cinema, the 25th anniversary screening. Oh, wow. And during the movie. 25 know, years? Right? Oh, man, I'm old. Doesn't that make you feel old? I know. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. 1994. John says, during the movie, I wondered if the story of Andy in that movie is a good example of a eucatastrophe, hmm. and does it fit into Tolkien's definition of one? John says, I'm not too familiar with Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, but to the viewer, it, it appears Andy has hope where there is none, and the joy of seeing him escape is elating, which is my basic understanding of a eucatastrophe. Hmm. Got a good point. Okay, yeah. Uh, John says, this leads to a second question. What is your favorite non-Tolkien eucatastrophe story? Oh, be it a book or a movie or other? Well, that's a fun question. And it's one that really doesn't have a right or wrong answer, which let's be honest, that's our favorite kind because then we can't be corrected. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. That's exactly right. Now, there might be a right answer to the question of whether the Shawshank Redemption has a catastrophe. I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm going to admit that I love that movie and uh, so much so that it, I don't own it on DVD or Blu-ray. It's one, of the, it's one of my favorite movies that I don't actually own because it's always on cable. That's true. It does seem like it's always on. Yeah, and whenever it's on cable, I usually just put it on and watch it. But it has been a few years since I've seen it last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's been at least 10 or 15 years since I've seen it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do seem to remember the ending being somewhat catastrophic, but I think I would have to watch it again to refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. But I, I will say this. Shawshank Redemption is based on a novella by Stephen King, Oh yeah, that's even right. though he's usually he's usually a horror writer, but he wrote that one, and he actually, despite being a horror writer, he's a big fan of Tolkien, mm-hmm. and I would not be surprised to to see a U catastrophe in one of his stories. Yeah, yeah. In fact, getting on to the second part of the question, some of our favorite non-Tolkien U catastrophe stories, I actually posted this question in our subreddit, and we got some great ideas out of that, which I'll share here. Okay. But I also had a few of my own, including the fact that because Stephen King is a fan of Tolkien. And it has been decades since I've read Stephen King, honestly. But some of my memories of some of his horror stories are even you catastrophic. I, sure. I kind of think, I know you're not a fan of horror movies or horror books, no. but I kind of think even Stephen King's It might have kind of a you catastrophic ending. I'd have to go back and revisit that unless somebody remembers it better than I do. 
I but, don't um, remember it at all, having never read it. So, <laughs> well, there you go. that's what I figured. Yeah, but somebody out there may know it and may be able to say, yeah, that is a catastrophe, or or maybe it's not. I, I can't recall for sure. The first one that came to mind for me was War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. read that one. Yeah, but, long time ago. Uh, yeah, the, the Martians invade. They actually take over the Earth, but in the end, and I'm sorry, I'm spoiling this hundred well, plus year old. I was going to say it's not exactly a recent tale. Yeah, they're eventually overthrown by bacteria. And the narrator of the book actually says, I I found this passage in the book, it says they were slain after all man's devices had failed by the humblest things that God in his wisdom has put upon this earth. Wow. Now, that seems like eucatastrophe. Yep, that's eucatastrophic language right there. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That kind of actually makes me think of one that I I didn't put down on the list. It was... um, Oh, that M. Night Shyamalan movie with Mel Gibson, and now I can't, and, and. Oh, Joaquin signs. Phoenix. Signs, the yes. Alien, yes, signs, Yeah, and yes. it turns out that water was their, their weakness, and that she yeah, just. that's right. Wow, wow. It was that's a good one. one. That, things, actually, yeah. that actually is a really good one. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about that I had one. completely forgotten about that, but in, in terms of the alien invasion part of that, part of that story, yeah, that's mm-hmm. catastrophic. But the one yeah. that I had thought of was Apollo 13 which really has the added benefit of being non-fictional. Mm-hmm. So many things lined up precisely in order to get Lovell and his crew home from what should have been, by all rights, a total and complete disaster. I mean, mm. I can think of at least a half dozen, maybe more things that happened. And the way they happened, if they hadn't happened that way, they wouldn't have survived. So that's They're a pretty gone. amazing yeah. tale. Yeah. If you haven't seen that, check that out. I haven't seen that one in a long time. I remember mm. really liking it when wow. I saw it. But, Powerful. Uh, I think Powerful I saw it stuff. at the theater when it came out. So that was Oh, it's great in the theaters. Ago. Watching that launch in the theaters. Yeah. Oh, 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 man. Yeah. Yeah. One of our Reddit users mentioned uh, Les Miserables. Oh, now, okay. Now, I haven't, I haven't read the novel. Uh, yeah, I've seen either. the musical. Uh, I've seen the musical a bunch of times, and okay. including just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and that one definitely does fit. And it's, uh, it's an interesting one because it's a totally different genre. You know, it's not. It's not science fiction or, or right. fantasy or anything like that, but wow. it's uh, it's definitely catastrophic. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, now, okay. Tell well, tell me your thoughts on this. I'm not sure if that's a catastrophe mm-hmm. or just a Deus Ex Machina. I mean, yeah, there's a very literal Deus Ex well, Machina yeah. going on at the that's end of that true. movie. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Well, you're not kidding. Literal literally, Deus Ex Machina. Literal, yeah. Uh, God coming out of the box, basically. But right. So I don't know if that's really a catastrophe, or maybe it's just a Deus Ex Machina. But. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it so many times; it's it's all second, you know, it's all second nature. But I would probably put it more in the Deus Ex Machina category. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. But then there was one that we both agreed on, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Oh, very nicely done. <laughs> Terribly done. Very nicely Terribly done. done. Um, yeah, man, Star Wars. I mean, I'll just do this the whole time while you're talking. Okay, that's good. Yes, I mean, come on, folks. The, the first, the first step. <laughs> it's much harder to talk over that than you think. So the original Star Wars movie, Episode Four, now yeah. is actually called A New, A New Hope, Hope. Right? Exactly. So uh, can't get more catastrophic than that. Yeah, I mean. Think about like all the stuff that oh, yeah. had to line up for for Luke to be there at the Death Star and then use the Force right. to blow it up. That only happens um, by Obi Wan dying. Yeah, yeah, that's a disc catastrophe. Right, that's the whole thing. And and yeah. even really, if Han hadn't abandoned the Rebels, they might have tried a different tack. You know, yeah. he comes back. Oh obviously, yeah, that's true. And that, and that is the win that they need. Well, but... that's just it. He comes back at just the right time. Right. Like, 
you know, like the Eagles, and he blows Vader out of the sky. <laughs> you, you know, go. you're all clear, kid. Now let's blow this thing and oh, go home. I, I mean, that, that is Absolutely that's a huge catastrophe that. moment. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, if if Obi Wan had still been alive, he he wouldn't have been a Force ghost. He wouldn't no. have been able to talk to to tell Luke to turn off the targeting computer. Right. I mean, would Luke even be there if Obi Wan hadn't died? I could just as oh, easily yeah. see him going back to Tatooine or something. Right. That's a very good point. So big you catastrophe there. Mm-hmm. So many. Honestly, I was. I started thinking more about the Star Wars uh, universe because I love all the Star Wars movies. Right, uh, right. Well, most of the Star Wars movies. And uh, Return of the Jedi actually has a structure that kind of mirrors Lord of the Rings in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's so true. I haven't quite thought through that one yet. But, you know, when you think of like Vader's sacrifice at the end and Luke, mm-hmm. you know, facing off against the Emperor, that's... Oh, yeah. You could probably see that as you catastrophic. Well, Vader throwing, you know, completely flipping sides there that's, at the end. Yeah. That that is yeah that's true that's definitely you kind of yeah you're not expecting that um, at all this is you're done loops yeah. over this is we're, we're yeah yeah great stuff yeah one of our Reddit users uh, Casey I think it was uh, mentioned the Last Jedi and was asking like is what happens in Last Jedi and I won't spoil that one but there's a, a big moment recent, in Last right? Jedi it's kind of a twist you know is that uh, is that a you catastrophe um, so I want to go back and watch that one yeah I'd have to watch that, I've but... only seen it once so I I have to I'd have to really put my thinking cap I'm, for that. I'm in the process of working through them all again in, in preparation for episode oh, of nine. Of course, that um, makes sense, yeah. So, yeah, I'll be I'll be watching again. But, yeah, I definitely think there's you catastrophe all over the Star Wars oh, universe. Oh, of course there is, yeah. And that's not a shock coming from uh, from Lucas. And now, yeah, I mean, obviously I know he's not doing them now, but, you know, he's the one who started the universe on its uh, yeah. in the right direction. Yeah, he, he sort of he set the tone for it. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who's trying to make a Star Wars movie in the vein of George Lucas, uh, I think is probably going to be doing that. I agree. So All right. lots of good examples on Reddit. I mean, people mentioned like Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Avengers Endgame. You know, there's there's you catastrophes all over there. That's folks. true. Fun stuff. If you look for it, you'll find it. That's for sure. But that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Now, please be sure to join us again next week when Gandalf explains the refraction of light through a prism. <laughs> he does it using the gatefold sleeve of Saruman's old LP of Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, oh, yes, he does. Absolutely. <laughs> what, whatever course. got you through science class in junior high, Sean, that's, if that's what worked for you, <laughs> that was we're it. good. That was it, yep. Well, as always, folks, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, but we also want to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Dance Contribution Tier. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, and Mario in Utah. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and most of all, your villainous monologues to Barlaman <laughs> at the prancingponypodcast.com. Barlaman's not always punctual with the mail. You folks know that by now. But we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>